Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the COVID What Comes Next podcast with Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health and a globally respected pandemic scientist and physician. Every week here, Dr. Jha will analyze events of the previous several days and offer his assessment and guidance for what lies ahead. I'm your host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal and the USA Today Network. Good morning, Ashish. How are you? Hey, good morning, Wayne. How are you? I'm well. I'm well, thank you. I'm well. So give us an assessment of where we stand today on the pandemic. Yeah, I am feeling pretty optimistic this morning um, for a variety of reasons. So let's talk about why I am so excited. Um, The first one, Wayne, is that, you know, we have been seeing cases drop, obviously, in the last six weeks. And we've been waiting for the death numbers to start coming down. And I have to say, the death numbers, they got below 2,000 daily deaths, average 2,000 daily deaths over the weekend. And they are dropping faster than I expected. Uh, And I want to walk through why they're dropping faster than I expected and why I see a lot of optimism for the next two months, three months, and maybe and definitely longer, too. Um, They're dropping faster than I expected for two reasons. One is hospitals are no longer slammed. And when hospitals are not slammed, what that means is that uh, they have more time and and they can focus more on patient care. The flip side is when hospitals get really overwhelmed, you see death numbers climb. So part of the declining number of deaths is that hospitals are just able to do a better job taking care of people. That's great. The second is we have done a reasonably good job of vaccinating the highest risk people, the nursing homes, et cetera. Again, nationally, we're not talking about any specific state. In January, infections in those places are plummeting. And you know that's where so many of the deaths were. And so as we get finished February, get into March and April, we should not be seeing a lot of deaths in, in long-term care facilities, nursing homes. That is going to make an enormous difference. So what I said on Twitter last night was I said, you know, we had essentially three months of two to 3,000 deaths a day, every day. We will, we should never see that again. Like that should be our past, even with the variants. I don't know that we'll ever get back above 2,000 deaths. And thank goodness. Um, and if things go well by St. Patrick's Day, not that far away, we should be seven, 800 deaths a day. Again, still a lot, but boy, a far cry from 3,000, 3,500. Um, and fingers crossed the variants don't cause too much trouble and we just continue declining, declining as we get into spring and summer. So that's my optimism. Deaths really are coming down fast and thank God. So um, you, you talked about the variants and the FDA on Monday said that vaccine developers did not need to conduct lengthy randomized controlled trials 
to evaluate vaccines that have been adapted to target concerning coronavirus uh, variants. And I'm, I'm reading from the New York yep. Times there. Yep. Talk about that. What, what, why, why are they doing that? And is it important? Yeah, it's really important. It's a really good idea. And they're getting it exactly right. Look, when you develop something brand new that you haven't tested in people, you got to go through the full process. But when you make tweaks, which we do all the time to medicines and, and more than medicines, this is a classic thing that we do um, with devices. Imagine that you've got a device that's approved for hip replacement, and then you make a minor modification. You have to go through the whole clinical trial again. You can say, look, this is a minor modification. They're, they're going to, on vaccines, they're going to make the vaccine makers do more. But we don't need to run large 50, 100,000 person trials. We've run them. The vaccines are safe. If you make minor changes in the structure of the, of the RNA, mRNA to, to deal with, let's say, a variant, you want to do some safety checks to make sure that that hasn't introduced any complications. And then you should be able to administer them. I would certainly feel comfortable uh, getting them. So that's what the FDA is saying is, hey, um, do some safety checks, make sure it's still safe. But other than that, you don't have to go through a, a six month or a year long clinical trial. Every time there's a new variant that you gotta address. Well, that seems reasonable to me and it certainly is encouraging. So we, uh, we had, um, actually the Biden administration is five weeks into office now. If you can give us a very brief assessment of the job they're doing, they're, they're now firmly in control. They are firmly in control. Um, Things are clearly heading in the right direction federally. So I'll tell you, I'm talking to a lot of states and states feel like, boy, the world changed on January 20th because all of a sudden they went from, they used to call out to the White House and say, we need help on this and this. And mostly before January 20th, the response they got from the feds was, you're on your own. We're not, we're not here to help you out. That's not our job. Uh, starting January 20th, people started taking their phone calls and they would say, oh, you need help? Sure. Let's see what we can do. Let's see if we can get FEMA. Let's see if we can get the public health service. Boy, so for states, this feels like a huge change in terms of, and what that means is we have seen vaccine distribution pick up. What we have seen is they have been tweaking things around the edges to make sure that we go from, you know, 1 million doses a day being distributed to a million and a half. To, I think we're well going to be over 2 million doses a day all through March. It's a huge uptick. Um, so on vaccinations, I'm, I feel like they've done a very good job. Uh, they've been good on communicating. In fact, if I had a critique, I think they've been too negative about the long term. I think I hear, oh, life will go back to normal by Christmas. Life will be way better well before that. Um, and then the part that I would, and they've been good on masks. So if I had to critique them just so, so that I don't sound like I'm a total fan person, um, I don't think they've done enough on testing. I think they have let testing slide a little bit. They've done a little bit on getting some home tests going, but I have been disappointed that they're not pushing testing harder. So we had uh, some audience questions and I'm going to read them. So one is from when my husband and I are in an older demographic and have been extremely careful since last March, scheduled to receive our second shots shortly. What are the appropriate freedoms and restrictions following the two-week period after a second dose? And this person wants to know, you know, can you share indoor dining at a restaurant with other people? Can friends and family go into their home during this two-week period? And so yep. what, do you, what do you say to that? Yeah. So first of all, congratulations. I think it's great uh, that they, they're getting their second dose. And, th and good job on waiting two weeks after the second dose. So the person clearly knows that that's when you're optimal. 
Um, what I would say is the following. There's nothing that's zero risk, um, and it's just by risk management. But we used to live with risk before the pandemic, right? Um, and then I'll get, some, I'll get some specific. But what I say is when, when you think about what to do in the post-vaccine world, there are four factors to think about. Are you vaccinated? In this case, they are vaccinated. Is the person you're interacting with vaccinated? Um, what is the level of community transmission? And how high risk are you? So if you're a high risk person, which these, this couple may be, they're vaccinated. Um, the question, community transmission is still reasonably large, still high. And the question is, are they, so interacting with unvaccinated people, I would still be careful. Interacting with other vaccinated people, so you have a, you have a friend who's been vaccinated, bring them, then getting together for coffee, getting together for a meal, I think is much more reasonable. Community transmission will come down over the next couple of months, at which point things like indoor dining start becoming much safer. The problem with indoor dining is you're not wearing a mask and you have no idea if other people are vaccinated or not, right? So um, I would hold a little bit on things like indoor dining, uh, but hanging out with other vaccinated people, certainly safe. Uh, family who's not been vaccinated, I think it's okay, just got to be careful. And it, I wouldn't sort of act like it was 2019, but you can begin to do some things with people who are not vaccinated, but you just have to be a bit more careful, at least for a couple months until community transmission levels are down. So this person writes, I was told not to get the vaccine because I have an allergy to polysorbate, which is a component in both vaccines, trying to figure out if all vaccines need that component. If they do, I can never have a COVID vaccine. So my question is, do all future vaccines need to have PEG in them? I don't think so. And I think this is a really good question. And I think even Moderna and Pfizer are trying to think about reformulations that don't have PEG in them uh, for people who have allergies. And uh, there are other vaccines coming, I expect, within the week to have J&J authorized. So this is one where you have to pay close attention. But I certainly would not assume that you're never going to be able to get vaccinated. I think there will be options in the future. And, and not, the not necessarily even that distant in the future. Sorry, go ahead. No, no problem. Final question. I love hearing these podcasts and love listening to Dr. Jar. So thank you for that. So there's a, there's a big shout out to you. My question is, I would like to plan a cruise to Bermuda. Dr. Jar, do you think that taking a cruise this summer will be safe? Yeah, boy, that's a very good question. Cruises are tough. Cruises are tough because a lot of people pack together for an extended period of time, and we've seen large outbreaks in cruise ships. I will tell you that cruises will eventually be safe. I don't know that I would do a cruise this summer because I, unless the cruise line, for instance, requires that everybody be vaccinated, that would make it much safer. But I don't know that a cruise line is ready to start doing that yet. So, you know, look, if you've been vaccinated uh, and you want to go on a cruise this summer, uh, it's okay, but I feel like it's still pretty risky. And I personally would avoid it and I would avoid, I would not recommend it to uh, families. Again, unless the cruise line comes up with a very detailed policy of how they can keep everybody safe. There are ways they could do it, but ask everybody to be vaccinated, do testing before people board, have a surveillance system on board that can keep uh, outbreaks contained. If they do all of that, then I will change my mind. But I haven't heard that yet from cruise lines. Thank you. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, send them to me, gwmiller at providencejournal.com, and write question for Dr. Ja in the subject field. Ashish, thank you again. Have a good day, and we'll see you in a week. Wade, thank you. It was a pleasure, and I look forward to it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.